Sunrise on SAFM. Otherwise, it is with you uh, coming to you from Grahamstown here on SAFM. Otherwise, talking women and really nice to be with you. Well, kind of sad, actually, to be leaving Grahamstown. It's been so interesting, and I can report, if you're interested in the weather, if you're still coming, that it's a beautiful, sunny, fresh, clear day up here from the monument where you can see the whole divergent scope of the town and hear the church bells ringing, which feels kind of symbolic. So let me tell you, though, before I wax even more lyrical, let me tell you what we've got on the line-up today. We've got three... Um, calling them productions. One of them, in fact, is a film. We're going to be starting off with the film then. It's actually from the ThinkFest. It's a documentary film. It's, uh, it's going to be previewing on Saturday. It's called Insika, the Pillar. And it tracks the journey of a white principal. She's from a very privileged school uh, in town here in Grahamstown through to heading up a secondary school in a township. She's Madeleine Schoolman, the principal in question. But we're going to be talking to the documentary filmmakers, I can call them, uh, Aleta Schoon and Johanna Mabungo. And they are, uh, well, well, I'll give you their story in just a minute, but they've collaborated on this, and it's quite an interesting uh, way in which they've got together. So that's what we're going to be starting off with. After that, we're moving, well, we're moving abroad. We're going to be hearing about a production called Florence Foster Jenkins, which somebody described this morning as absurdist. Well, sadly, it's done. They've finished here in Grahamstown, um, but it sounds like quite a wacky story. It's a play about uh, what they describe as the power of imagination, that you can really be whatever you want to be, even if you have absolutely no talent. Well, I'm not so sure that that's necessarily true. But this uh, Florence Foster Jenkins is a, a wannabe soprano who, it seems, had, um, seems, well, her talent seems to have been questionable, but we'll find out a little bit more about that. And then last but not least, an audience with Miss Hobhouse. Well, as you know, Emily Hobhouse was the Anglo-Boer War heroine. And in this particular production, a piece put together by Tony Jackman, she is at her most fiery. She's performed by Lenita Crawford, and we'll be chatting to Lenita. So that's what we've got lined up, and I hope you're going to stay with us. But right now, it is Otherwise. Otherwise, on SAFM. Otherwise it is, and I'm not going to invite you to phone in, which is such a pity, but I'm going to suggest that if you'd like to hear anything more about what you've heard on the show in the last couple of days, pop us an email, we're at otherwise at safm.co.za, or find us on Facebook, it's otherwise on SAFM. Well, let's start with some uh, food for thought here from Grahamstown. First up, a documentary film, it's called Ntika, The Pillar, and uh, as I say, it tracks the journey of a white principal, her name is Madeleine Schoeman, and she's a, a principal at a privileged school uh, in the town, but she moves on to becoming principal or heading up a secondary school in the township. And uh, in fact, it's, it's not going to be premiering, but it is going to be previewing uh, this Saturday, which sounds good, and it's going to be previewing to a lot of the people who were involved, interestingly. After that, I think it's probably headed for one or two film festivals around and about, and it seems like a story that does need to be put out there. So, let me introduce you to the ladies who know all about it. Alette Skun, hi Alette. Hi there. Nice to have you with us. With us, in fact, I bumped into your husband by coincidence this morning. Had a chat to him on the Village Green, so he gave me a bit of a heads up on your production as well. Mm. Um, now, Alette, you are with the School of Journalism and Media Studies. In fact, you both are. I think yeah. that's right. And you're a lecturer in television production. Is this your first entree into the movie world, or is it television that you mostly focus on as a filmmaker? Uh, well, I've had a couple of my films that I made for television showing on film festivals. Zanzibar, Hong Kong and oh. Moscow <laughs> So you can describe yourself as an international filmmaker Hopefully yeah, yeah. <laughs> good. Well what's important though right now is a local story And you, Johanna Mabungo, you are um, you're a media researcher, also a lecturer? Yes Okay, and have you been at Grahamstown long at the university? Yep, 
seven years. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. So you're not writing it for seven years. It's just yet. <laughs> is, is film your medium? I mean, you're a media researcher. I imagine you use yes. many different yes. media, but film yes, is your film passion. is my film broadcasting. That's my passion. But okay. I focus on all media, print. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose these days one can do everything and one is required to do everything but the two of you met and collaborated on this film I think when you were at a workshop tell us the story John well we went to a film workshop with Michael Ravager when he was visiting Aliette had invited him um, for Aliette did you want to tell the story yes uh, well Michael Ravager is considered sort of internationally the kind of guru in terms of uh, uh, teaching documentary filmmaking mm. and uh, we, um, we went to the workshop and, and basically he challenged us to, to make a film to get together as Grahamstown filmmakers and make a film of which we would not know the ending of because uh, he said there's too many films that are quite predictable uh, and uh, you know when I, when I saw the article about Madeleine Skumon in the newspaper uh, I in, the local in the local newspaper, in the Grokot's Mail, uh, I thought, you know, that's quite, it's quite interesting because it deals with the issue of education and, you know, w- we decided to, to track her, uh, you know, and it was, it was quite interesting because, uh, you know, we wanted to make a, uh, we, we discussed it in our group, uh, Johanna and my husband are part of our group, there's, there's six of us that are kind of working on it as a, as a collective and, uh, you know, initially, some some of our white members were a little bit nervous about, you know, is this going to come across as, you know, this woman is coming to into, to save the school. But it was quite interesting because it was Johanna's husband who felt most passionately, no, we we have to tell the story, and and we've tried to involve many people. You know, there's quite a number of, of activists from Grandstand that we've also drawn into the film. Uh, people like Norma Langam Kise who has organized a, a summit on education here during, during the time. So we also incorporated that into the film. Okay. Mm. Tell us the story then. Tell, tell us Madeleine's story. Mm. <laughs> well, I see you're deferring <laughs> to one another. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, uh, Madeleine's come is quite interesting because she's a woman in her, in her 50s. Uh, she's kind of established herself already. She, she's quite unusual in that, you know, most principals, particularly in the town side of school, are all men. And uh, she came into uh, Victoria Girls High as a woman principal, and they were a bit sort of nervous because normally the principal's wife used to run the hostel. But uh, she said, oh, don't worry, I'll run the hostel as well. Uh, something which has actually stood her in good stead because she's o- helped to organise the, the feeding scheme at the at the school at Nsika that they've recently introduced. Um, but basically, uh, but just before you go into, so did she choose to leave Victoria? Yes, she said that she thought about it for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Victoria Girls High, although it's a a, a a school in town, is probably about. 80 to 90 percent black children and I think in the transition you know from democracy she became quite uh, aware um, that you know one really needs to to make an impact in this country and uh, she became aware of the children that couldn't get into the school that uh, you know the issue with with other schools uh, in townships was that there wasn't necessarily people with with uh, the leadership skills that she's had 
um, you know, coming from a lot of experience, uh, also her education, and she decided, you know, that's where she, she wanted to go. But so presumably she applied and got the job, is that yes. how it worked? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, Jana, your husband, I'm interested in this, the six of you, who are obviously a little bit of a think tank in your own right, mm-hmm. your husband was particularly impassioned about this story that it should be told. Why, why did he see that it was important? Well, I don't know, but I think I, I can speak about probably what we've discussed as an, but I think telling a story of someone who complete, who decides at, at Madeline's age to change and make an impact in somebody's life is always a very passionate story. Um, she went into an environment where they hadn't been without a principal. I mean, they had had acting principals for a while. So the school was really struggling and needed leadership. And she stepped up and she said, I can provide the leadership. So I think in that sense, it became quite an what would happen if she came into this environment that it was such a foreign environment for her. I mean, she had seen it just as an observer and, you know, an onlooker, but had never been in those circumstances. Now, to actually leave everything behind and her privilege and to decide that I'm going to put myself in this situation and actually see what happens. in, In a way, it changes and challenges you. It's exciting, but it's also, you know, it can really take you where you never think you can go you know, um, intellectually and emotionally. And I think for us, tracking the story, that's what we've seen, that she's really been taken in and out of herself. Yes. Is she still there? Mm. Yes. Yes. So this is why you don't know the ending, because it's current. How long has she been at the school? About uh, two years now. Yeah, nearly nearly two years. Mm. Interesting you say that, you know, it was a foreign environment for her. Equally, Mm. she was a a foreign uh, principal, if you like, in the situation... How was she received? She was very well received. I mean, when she arrived at the school, the teachers, I think, through, they, they had a welcoming party for her. And you know, so initially, the, there was such a, well, a warm, we want to treat her as one of our own, you know. And there, were, they, there, had, been, there had been some struggles here and there with the teachers. We don't want to give the whole story away. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, the gist of it is that it, it wasn't as easy it was quite a complicated situation yeah. when mm-hmm. she did arrive. Um, she was very well, warmly received, but as it progressed, certain things unfolded and, yeah. Yeah. So she was, I mean, it sounds like she was sort of coming as an educational evangelist, really, you know, that she was going to make she's a big change. She's actually very clear that she doesn't want to be there. Th- okay, yes. that's exactly what she's, mm. yeah. Mm. It's exactly what she doesn't want to be. Uh, she's very keen that... Uh, she she wants to involve everyone at the school and um, you know that's kind of what the form also became because uh, initially we thought that we'd focus mainly on her but uh, you know then you know talking to her and to the teachers um, you know people felt very strongly that we had to involve the whole school mm. uh, which is uh, why we've involved some of the teachers there's one mm-hmm. teacher in particular whose um, story we tell who's a story is a teacher from another country from Sierra Leone mm. and he speaks about the fact that um, as far as he's aware m- a large percentage of Eastern Cape maths and science teachers are from other countries he's aware of a Ghanaian and a Zimbabwean teacher in, in, in Grahamstown and with this whole issue of temporary teachers being retrenched because those teachers couldn't get any um, permanent status because they, they're not South African, they've all been let go and that has had a huge impact 
on schooling in the Eastern Cape because suddenly, you know, there's a gap, no maths and science teachers, and I, I don't know if really if, if governments pick that up. Mm. It certainly sounds, yeah. Now, another interesting thing, also, the story, the story is not... It, it, it devolved from Madeline, and then there's also this, the stories of the learners because we follow um, about two learners that stand out. I mean, we follow quite a few, but then there's two that stand out and try to tell their story as well and how they, what their hopes and dreams are, and, and how they struggle through, you know, trying to achieve that education to, trans, you know, to transcend poverty and into university or take. Um, College. So there's those stories. Those those stories also that make that link back to Madeline and her journey and what the change that she tries to bring to the school. Mm-hmm. Stay with us. You're listening to Otherwise. Uh, coming to you from Grahamstown. We're talking about uh, a film that's going to be preview. It's going to be previewing uh, on Saturday. In fact, at the Eden Grove at the Thinkfirst there, and I think it's happening at six o'clock on Saturday this coming Saturday. But it seems like it's, it's kind of a symbolic story. Going to come back to you in just a minute um, and, and find out a little bit more about Mad- Madeleine's own story because she, you saw her piece in the, in the newspaper in the Grocott in mm-hmm. Grocott and it would be interesting to find out what, what it was that she was actually saying so stay tuned you're listening to Otherwise Mahala airtime is back bigger and better hello corner how can I win 50% free airtime I've got skills eh uh-huh. I can rock climb without a harness yeah, hit a holy month my eyes closed sure. I can even walk backwards oh, up the hill oh my friend you are a winner already just by being with MTN all you have to do is recharge to get 50% Mahala airtime every day at any time to make free MTN to MTN calls send SMS's and use the internet sweet but now that's bigger and better Mahala for you conditions apply minimum recharge value is 10 rand the story centers on a recent widow and single father. Jim Grant wanted for a bank robbery and murder, who hid from the FBI for over 30 years posing as an Albany attorney. You want your way to New York to turn yourself in? Go move! Hands in the air! Grant must find his ex-lover Mimi, the one who can clear his name. Got him. You have a full green light. What are you willing to take a risk for? I don't think he's running away. I think he's trying to clear his name. The company you keep will be available in cinemas from the 18th of July, 2013. Are you a lover of the finer things in life? Do you have a passion for music, visual art, theatre, cinema, literature and good food? Then Classic Feel magazine is essential reading for you. Published monthly, Classic Feel is South Africa's number one arts, culture and lifestyle magazine. Get the latest issue of Classic Feel magazine now at selected newsagents and bookshops. Find out more at www.classicfeel.co.za Otherwise, on SAFM. Otherwise, talking women, and we're talking right now to two women. We're talking to Alette Skun and Johanna Mabungu, who have both been uh, collaborated on a movie that's called Nsika the Pillar, which is, in fact, the name of a school in the township right here. Probably, if I look out of this window, I can probably see it. It's quite interesting because the the school that she left is on the same road Mm. as uh, Nsika Senior Secondary. And, uh, you know, as you go down this road, Mm. uh, the kind of leafy suburbs give way to much harder township streets. And it really, you know, I think in Grahamstown one can see the the inequality in this country just going down one street. Absolutely. Mm. I did the very same thing myself. Well, not that particular road, but I drove, instead of going in in the direction of the monument, I went the other way and I found myself in Jacob Zuma Street and I thought, oh, hello, 
here's mm. the divide. Here's the, the sort of the, the place where things change, like a turning of the tides. Interesting. So, so hugely symbolic, this story of Madeleine. I think that when you read that first story, she was just about to embark on this switch. Um, she hadn't yet done it. So you went to, uh, and we're talking about her entree into the into the, into Nsika. But what, how was her exit from Victoria? It was very moving. We had a, a lot. We didn't really have a dry eye in the audience. A lot of the children spoke with, with great passion about how she had kind of been a mother to them, and uh, the teachers as well were a bit nervous about whether she was going to cope. Uh, yeah, but she's a, she's a very strong woman. Coping, okay. Johanna, how is she coping so far? <laughs> she's been there for, what did you say, a year and a half? Yes. What think, yeah. I think she's coping well. Um, she, there's, I think she's realized also that the challenges, she, she has her own preconceived, I think, ideas of why schools in the township don't work. And I think in one of the interviews we had with her, she actually says that she didn't realize how harsh it was mm. and how difficult it's, it, it, it was going to be. So she goes, we go, we see her slowly going through this, you know, almost, it's like a penny dropping. Mind change. At some, at, at, at a, you know, like when things start to become much clearer and her own understanding of what the difficulties and the challenges are becomes much clearer as she interacts with the teachers, she interacts with the parents, with the, with the, with the kids. But yeah. Can you, can, has she articulated exactly what those challenges are? I mean, can you... Well, she, she mm-hmm. has said that, uh, you know, that people think there's only one thing that's problematic. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people tend to blame teachers, mm. um, but she's realized that the situation is actually a lot more complex. I mean, just for us working with the, with the young people, uh, most of them didn't live with their parents. Uh, most of them spoke about the importance of not going to bed hungry. Uh, we had young people affected by HIV AIDS. Uh, Madeleine also spoke about the difficulty of funding, the, you know, coming from a, a school where you know, they could employ seven extra teachers. She's sitting in a situation where she's been asked to let go of teachers, but uh, you know, there's, according to the government's own regulations, there's not enough teachers. You know, the teacher load that they have is, uh, is really, really high. So um, there's all all those factors, and uh, yeah, it's not as simple as, as one. No, I, I'm quite sure it isn't as simple as that. You know, I mean, you can't teach a hungry hungry child just as a sort of start of a ten. So, um, so it's not there are no sort of simple solutions here. The teachers, as you so quite rightly say, that a lot of people say, well, it's the teacher's fault. Does she see any solutions? And I mean, one of the things that I suppose is most important, there's, there's this always sort of a three-legged pot thing. There's the teachers and the parents and the children. What, what about the parents? What has been their response? Because another thing that's cited as a challenge in many schools is that the parents are not participating. Mm. Is that an issue, given that so many children are not living with their parents? Mm. And that, that came out strongly mm. um, from our documentary, is that the kids, are in, in many cases, don't have the social kind of support structure that they need to, you know, to to be able to, I don't know, hold their end of the of the whole education thing. But I mean, some parents are involved, but still, kids don't do well. Then you ask yourself, is it really the parents? But there was, a, there is a case where the parents, the, the you know, the parents are so involved and they participate in the school governing body, but the kids still don't do well. So that's why we say the situation is so much more complicated. But also, the the issue of parents not being involved is a huge issue. I mean, in one of the summit that Nomalanga 
um, organizers. The, the um, it talks about that. It just goes deeply into Nomalanga Mkize. She she's um she runs save our schools and community yes she runs so save our schools and community in Grantstown which provides um intervention programs for to support young kids in the township with their schoolwork and to encourage parents to get more involved so that came out as a big um theme that parents need to be more supportive and more involved and ask more questions of the school. And I think one of the things that are being raised is that the parents don't pay school fees in these schools. So they also feel a bit unsure about their role in terms of how can they be asking questions when they are economically disadvantaged to, you know, to provide for their kids the kind of schooling or education that they would like. Mm. And so they, it, it, it gets a bit... We don't know which... Where do you intervene? Yeah. In where would you start with the parents? But what's, but the what's actually been happening is that the organization that Nomalanga runs, Save Our Schools and Community, as well as another organization called the Gadra okay, Education right. Center, they've started, you know, particularly working with parents mm -hmm. and saying, you know, a lot of these um, SGB meetings are really, really bureaucratic. And what one needs to do is to work with parents so that parents can kind of stand up for the rights of their children. I, I'm guessing that there isn't only one thing that, can, that needs to be done, and mm. there are a whole lot of things. Mm. And given that you've, you've opened up this, what sounds like a sort of a social minefield, because it isn't just about education, it's all those social difficulties that we're facing. I suppose now that you've thrown the art rights in there, quite literally, mm. one is longing for some sort of solutions uh, from this movie, which presumably is almost just like a start. And yet, the whole objective was that you've got to do a, make a film about a story of, of which you know no end. So, now that you have this film, and it must have been very difficult to conclude it when it's so very much ongoing, any solutions that have emerged, do you think, Joanna? Well, I think at this we're at a very critical stage mm. in the film where we also have to really think about what is it that we're trying to communicate through the film um, and also dig deeply in ourselves in terms of what does it what 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 does it mean you know I mean for me I also talk about my story as somebody who came through a township education system and I've also experienced another edu a model C education system what does it mean you know how how did it have an impact in my own life and where I am today you know how does you know so we have to worry we, we not worry as such but we're concerned about those kind of representations and the solutions that we offer are we really in a position as filmmakers to be offering solutions but rather to be giving voice to the people that are living in these situations to then speak up is and it say it is. is it indeed your job as filmmakers to yes. be coming up with solutions I suppose mm. it's your job as filmmakers to open the debate put yeah. it out there and see what the response is is that what you're hoping mm. for Alex yes yes we've had a lot of people put out various perspectives. We've got uh, Dr. Mabizela at the university who used to head up Umalusi, which is the exam body, who speaks very passionately about uh, the fact that one needs to work with teachers uh, to help improve subject knowledge because that's, that is a problem and you know, to stop blaming teachers but to find a way to, to work with them uh, to, to improve that. I think what we need to know is to find a way where this film can be seen because it seems, as I keep saying, quite symbolic in a way of schools right around the country and whether or not there are madeleines all over the place, who knows, but it has thrown a light on the many, many challenges that there are. It's going to be uh, previewed on Saturday at Eden Grove here in Grahamstown at 6 o'clock. If you are in town, go and see it. Uh, after that, have you got a website? Can people see more? Are you going to enter it for film festivals? How can people find out more? 
Oh. Well, well we we're hoping to get it onto SABC. We've okay. had some preliminary discussions with them. Mm. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to um, tell you about that later. It'd be good to stay in touch. So yes. watch this space. SABC is where we hope to see it. And if we don't, hopefully we'll see it somewhere in the not-too-distant mm. future. It's been so interesting. Thank you so much. Thank Take you. care. Thank you. Johanna Mbongo and uh, Alette Skun. And they were talking about the movie called Nsika, which means the pillar, all about uh, a teacher who... Uh, principal who moves from one school to another and opens up all sorts of issues. So, But right now it's uh, 1.30 time for the news headlines with Aureli Kalinga. Thank you. Yes, and it's otherwise coming to you from Grahamstown here. Moment silence there. Pray, pray silence for um, all sorts of things. But how interesting it was to hear about that movie, Nsika, The Pillar. And we will keep you on the loop on that one, find out uh, where it's going to go and where it can be seen. Well, coming up in a minute, we're going to be getting an audience with Miss Hobhouse. It's a play about, yes, you guessed it's our favourite Anglo-Boer War heroine, Emily. And uh, she's at her most fiery and her most demanding in this particular performance. We're going to be talking to Lenita Crawford, who plays Emily herself. But before we do that, we're going to hear about a, a lady by the name of Florence Foster Jenkins. Well, Florence Foster Jenkins is, uh, is quite something, and she is, uh, um, she's living proof that you can do anything that you really want to be, whether or not you have the talent to do it, is also completely a question. Well, the two ladies who are here from Holland, in fact, which is, uh, which is very nice. We seem to be specialising in ladies from Holland because we spoke to lady f- another lady from Holland yesterday on a, movie, a play called Bye Bye World. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Have you yes. seen it? Yeah, we've seen yeah. it. Yeah. Yes, excellent, yes. excellent. Okay, the voices there of Pamela Menzo and of uh, Anna... Sorry, Anna, I've lost your name. Anna van Dorp. Now, Pamela, you play Florence Foster Jenkins, and Anna, you play the maid. Okay, well, we'll get onto your role in just a minute. Uh, I think there's a bit of a backstory here, Pamela, that we need to find out about, because Florence Foster Jenkins was a real live woman. Yes, she was um, alive. In when? Uh, when, when in she, she was uh, around about 1930, 1940. She was uh, trying her career in New York. Um, at the age of 67, she inherited a lot of money from her father, which, in fact, when she was younger, said, we're not going to pay for your singing lessons, you're not singing. And then um, at the uh, age of 67, she went and had on to have a career in New York as a soprano because she thought she was really, really good. But in fact, we hear the, the albums, she's not. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Did, did you she go and get trained? Why did she think she could be a soprano? Well, she was uh, trained as a, a pianist. And um, so she had a, a musical feeling, but her voice was too too crackly and too not strong enough. And uh, yeah, and I don't know. It's it's it's. She thought she could have also said, "I want to be a ballet dancer," but she she chose singing. And once a year, she had a big recital in a, in a Rich Carlton, and uh, she paid for her uh, herself for the, for the goodwill. And then she sang a lot of opera songs because she had a really large love of Ferdi and Strauss and, uh, and all these things. But you know, she wasn't able to deliver it. So she had the knowledge and she had the money. Yeah. But seemingly no talent. No. Why? Why did she think she did have? Had anybody told her? Or was she singing well, the Well, it's a bit of the, the clothing of the emperor. She mm. surrounded herself with people who supported her idea. And of course she was wealthy, she had a lot of influence. And when you're wealthy and you have a lot of influence, it's very hard to tell someone you're not that good. And if you, at a certain point, believe in your own lie, it becomes reality. 
And if somebody says, well, actually, you're not that good, you don't perceive it anymore. So the persons who said that to her, she just said, well, you're just very jealous of my talent. And then she just ignored it and went on with what she wanted to do. I mean, I'm just thinking at 67, that's quite a, an undertaking. Even if she was terrific, yeah. um, to suddenly take that up at the age of 67, yeah. uh, that was really quite something. Did people go along to these recitals? Yeah. Another maid, tell us. Yeah. <laughs> Do people go along to her recitals? Uh, yes, they did. She actually filled in uh, Carnegie Hall. That was her last performance. It was, uh, And people came... Uh, she became laughing stock, so people came to laugh at her, and they would clap really loud to hide their laughter. So she thought, oh, "I'm wonderful," but actually, people were just laughing. And actually, her performance at Carnegie Hall was the first performance that she really got reviews from outside her inner circle, and also bad reviews. And she died, I think, yeah. like uh, three weeks three after. weeks after a heart attack. And some people say that that, uh, that that performance maybe broke her heart because then she realized maybe she wasn't that good. But actually, I think what's very interesting about her and maybe why we, some people still know who she is because we, ne- we don't know what she really thought. Did she, did she really think she was talented or did she want to be special and thought, uh, I'll just pretend to be an opera singer and just start to believe in the lie or if you don't know do you put it to get somebody referred to it as absurdist and they, to, they told me that you were super talented um, <laughs> you've got a young chap who plays the piano yeah. and, and it's absolutely wonderful but it's really tragic yeah, yeah. It, is. it is it is it is and it's also what we found very interesting in this story and about her as a uh, inspiration for display because when you hear the CD or the, the album you have to laugh and then later when you start listening to a few more songs, you start to think, why is she doing this? And why did she record this? And this is actually what's underneath the story that's that behind the music is really tragic. And, yeah. and it's also, of course, she, I think she, everyone wants to be remembered, but she's remembered for being a terrible singer. And actually she wanted to be, of course, a very good singer. So that's also sort of very tragic. You managed to be remembered, but not for what you yeah. want to be remembered for. I can't remember his name. It's something like Thrib, but there's a poet. That something similar happened, and he wrote all these poems that were really, really awful and yeah. produced many, many books. And, and as you say, everybody would laugh at them. And I suppose... That's for any performer, and we've seen a lot of productions yeah. here. For anyone, would be to have complete disinterest, or for somebody to laugh at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Try. yeah. How, how does that make you feel as performer? Yeah, but it's 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 also a layer that you have as a performer underneath the performance. Um, yeah, we are all scared of doing something, and it's not good enough, especially as an actress or as a theatre maker. If you think, well, I think this is a nice performance. But what if they just stand up and walk off and say, you're yeah. awful? You're very vulnerable, of course, yeah. on stage. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also interesting. To imagine yeah. filling the Carnegie Hall and nobody walked out, everybody stayed there to listen to the whole thing and laughed. Yeah, yeah they were rolling down the aisles. Oh, no, it's, <laughs> it's yes. not no straightful story. But Anna, you play the maid. Did, yeah. she, not, did, did she not take you in her, into her confidence? Um, uh, the way we sort of made a piece is um, I'm the maid and I help Florence to make her dreams come true in a way but I'm also and something in between her maid but also her inner voice so I also at a certain point articulate a thing she doesn't want to hear that her doubt that maybe people will think that she's not good or that people are laughing at her and also mm-hmm. the story of her father 
All the men in her life didn't want her to sing. So her father said, There's no, we'll be, there will be no singing. Her husband later said, no, no, we're not going to do that. And after they all, after she separated and after her father died, then she had her freedom. So it's also this, I think everyone can relate to this thing that there's something you really want to do. And then if your parents say to you, no, don't, it's very tragic. I mean, she became a ridiculous person, but this beginning of this tragedy, Let's we can all relate to. A cautionary lesson for anybody <laughs> who thinks they might not be good enough, but that's a terrible thing. Are you really psychologists, or are you really actresses? No, <laughs> we're really actresses, yeah. But we, we, yeah, we, we, yeah, we, we like the psychology of these, these sorts of persons with all these quirky layers. Yes, yeah. yes, dark. She had so many sides, which that's what makes her so interesting. Yeah. I guess everybody does, but some of them prefer to keep their, <laughs> their downside sort of hidden. Pamela Menzo and uh, Anna van Dorp, thank you so much, the maid and the madam, I suppose we could say. <laughs> but it's been really interesting. What a pity it's all over, but nonetheless, now we know about Florence Foster Jenkins, yeah. and perhaps we shouldn't laugh, perhaps we should be sympathetic. It's been super. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. You're listening to Otherwise. Do stay with us, because in a minute we're going to be getting an audience in this Hophouse. Julius Malema apologizes to President Zuma. We want to apologize to him as a person. At times we got very angry to a point where we said things we shouldn't have said to an old veteran of the liberation movement. You heard it first on SAFM. South Africa's news and information leader. Otherwise on SAFM. Well, it is indeed otherwise here on SAFM, and uh, we are, uh, Florence Foster Jenkins' team are making way for young Miss Hobhouse, and actually she wasn't so young when she died, I think she may have been um, getting on a bit, I certainly know she was very sick, but here we have uh, incarnate, as it were, we do have an audience with Miss Hobhouse, well, if you don't know who she was, she was an Anglo-Boer war heroine, Emily, she was a Brit, and uh, she was she was pretty fiery, but in this particular play, she is at her most fiery. She is determined to have her voice heard, and I think she uh, she did that right throughout her adult life. Well, it's a play, or an audience with Miss Hobhouse, that has been written by Tony Jackman. It's being performed by Lenita Crawford, who we have right here in the studio. Hi, Lenita. Hi, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, what did you know about Miss Hobhouse before you got stuck into Tony's play? Well, I suppose, um, as most people say when we speak about Miss Hobhouse, not most people, they say, oh, well, you know, there's a, there's a submarine called the Emily Hobhouse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose I, I knew a little about her, but not as much as I know now. Um, yeah, I mean, I knew the name and I knew it was associated with the Boer War, but that's about it, really. And the thing about her was that she, um, she was a vicar's daughter, you know, she that's had right. a really protected child, yes. and then something snapped in her, and I think there were many influences in her life, and she became a full-on activist, really, yes. didn't she? Yes. At what point in her life does the audience with Miss Hobhouse pick up? Um, I suppose it happens, um, well, she's, um, when would it be? Um, after she'd come back from, we well, she'd been to America, and she'd worked there amongst the miners there, and then she comes back to um, England, and I think it's shortly after when the war starts, which is, you know, um, what is it, 1899, 98? Just yeah. backtracking a little bit, she went to America, um, I think she was unlucky in love over there. That's right, I think she got engaged to somebody. What, and then what was her activism all about? Where had it come from? Certainly not from her father. I, I suppose, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, I don't know, perhaps growing up and in that era, working amongst the, the poor, as she did, and amongst the needy, um, the, the miners, as we said, and perhaps that's where it started. It's a strong sense mm. of justice. Mm. Um, she came to South Africa, well, obviously the news of the Anglo-Boer War mm -hmm. was, was quite big uh, in the UK, but she actually came out to see for herself. 
That's right. And I think that in itself is, is an extraordinary thing for a woman to have travelled on her own to, um, you know, to, the, to, to the concentration camps and have been to Alard after she managed to get uh, Lord Milner to agree for her to go to the camps. And that was in itself a huge feat. I mean, if we think back to uh, perhaps today, we take it for granted, you know, that we could just jump on a plane or a ship and go anywhere. And, um, but for back then, it was, it was quite extraordinary. She had her eyes open big time, I think. And um, yeah. what she saw, she took back. What, yes. what happened after her first trip? Um, well, you know, uh, from what she saw in the cats, mm -hmm. yeah. I, well, I mean, she just... <laughs> The, 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 the horror of seeing the children especially I think is what got to her just seeing these children who were completely emaciated lack of food because especially if their parents well, if their, the fathers who were out fighting in the felt uh, were seen to be part of the, um, the Boer contingent their, their rations were cut in half you know so the children already they were on meager rations and, and the children I think suffered well, as I said thousands and thousands of them died and they had the hospital which I, from what I've read that if your children went to the hospital you were more concerned because they never came back mm. They were stories that she saw and witnessed with her own eyes, but they were stories that, that nobody really wanted to hear back in the mm -hmm. UK. Mm. The audience that she had was with whom? Uh, the audience when she went back to the UK? Yeah, I mean, the, an audience with Miss Hobhouse. Oh, yes. She was well, talking to whom? Well, she was talking to... Well, in the play, as we said, she's addressing the court, which is, uh, is fiction because she never, she never was heard. So it's a fictional situation in which she addresses... The, you know the royalty, the members of the parliament, the press, um, everything she would have dreamed exactly of. Exactly what she never got to do. Yeah. And what did she have to say? Well, she told them she she of of, of what she had seen and and um, to bring try to get across to them the horror of what she'd seen and their plight, and that she'd promised the the Boer women that she would go back to England and tell the people um, of what she'd seen. And uh, of course, then she was prevented from going any further after her first, um, first trip and what she saw and when she wanted to come back she was arrested and wasn't allowed to it fell on stony ground because nobody wanted to hear it anyway no, she never not. did get that, no, that audience no. but, um, but not only did it fall on stony ground not, was she not able to help but also um, she herself was persecuted Yes, yes. So, uh, she said she was ostracised when her name was part of the play. When her name was mentioned, people turned their backs on her. Uh, it's very sad for if you consider that she was saving, trying to save lives, and yet was persecuted for that, and was never acknowledged in any way, and was considered a traitor by her mm. own people. So, yes, very sad, but that she, that so little is known about her, as you say, yes. a lot of people say, oh yes, yeah. a famous submarine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but um, and completely uh, unappreciated in England, yes. and they're hardly known in England. But over here, how, I mean, Tony, who wrote the play, mm. he seems to have found all sorts of additional bits of information. It mm. seems that he must have been scratching through uh, volumes of material mm. that's hitherto not been known. Where did he do his research? Yeah. Um, I think it's where he's got uh, the diaries, certainly of the lady in the concentration camp, Tante Ali Bardenhorst, and then, of course, from all the other material that he researched on, on Emily here. Yeah. Um, I must say that I now I feel quite driven to actually go and visit all the all the sites. Uh, I was speaking to um, they're actually making a documentary on Emily because it's the centenary anniversary this year of the Women's Monument in Bloemfontein, and uh, I would actually really like to go on that journey and actually just experience and go and visit all these concentrate and the monument. I've never been there. And I'm, I'm quite uh, inspired to do that now. Well, hopefully you don't get sick along the way. I think she got, she got very sick. How, she, does, yeah. how, how does the play... Well, I shouldn't be giving away too much of the play because it's actually opening 
tomorrow. No, no, we know we opened on on Friday. Okay, so you've yes. opened. We've had three shows. We okay. have another six to go. Okay. Yes, at, we are on at six thirty every evening in the Oaklands Preparatory School in oh. African Street. Oh, how utterly appropriate that we should be at <laughs> Oaklands Preparatory School. Did it, uh, and for you, d- you must have done quite a lot of research yourself, or quite a bit of soul-searching, because I mean, it's quite a sort of legacy story. Isn't it, it is, it is. I, you know, it happened very quickly when we decided to do it, and I had about two weeks to learn all the words and to rehearse with Christopher Weir. So, um, unfortunately, I didn't really have time to, to read um, any of the, the books, the diaries and things, but I did a lot of research on the Internet as quickly as I could. To just, um, but I, do, I felt I've really t- I've taken quite a heart. Yes, <laughs> yes. really and and fire in the belly, because, mm. uh, you know, again, you know, Miss Emily Hophouse, it sounds mm. so prim and proper, but actually there's a lot of wrenching of clothes <laughs> and weeping and wailing. <laughs> quite a demanding piece. Very demanding, very mm. demanding. And I think um, any one person show is demanding. Um, but especially, uh, yeah, I found, um, you know, because I have a journey and I, I uh, it's sort of, I go between the two, the, 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 the concentration camp story and Emily's story. So initially when I started with very little rehearsal, it was quite difficult to remember where I was going and which part of the story, swapping characters all the time. So that was quite demanding. Um, it's, yeah, it is, it's certainly, it's demanding of an interesting journey. <laughs> Wonderful that you brought her back to life, as it were, yes, and, uh, and particularly at this uh, centenary time. Fantastic. Linisha Crawford, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of it. It's at Oakland's Preparatory School each and every evening between now at 6.30. So if you don't know who Ms. Evelyn Hophouse is and you think that she's a submarine, <laughs> time to get yourself educated. Lovely. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks. You've been listening to Otherwise. Thank you very much. That team is Fricky Wallace and Kim Winter. And next up, it's time for Shop Shop. <laughs>